The curtain opens. The lights go up. Those first few notes of magic. The crew that brings it all to you is here to tell you what it's like to live the backstage life. This is show pop. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Show Call. I'm your host, Chad Allen. With me today is theatrical tech, Steve Schaefer. How you doing? Pretty good. How you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing good. <laughs> Got the place yeah. all uh, nice and set up for you. Yeah, no, appreciate it. And we, uh, we had to reinforce your, your microphone, our microphones here with the uh, lighting truss. It's not overkill at all, is it? No, it, it works for me. I mean, it's, it sets the mood. <laughs> right. So... Um, Theatrical tech. Explain what that is. What what all is involved with theatrical tech? I know it's a lot, but yeah. Yeah. So the, theatrical tech is the, the blanket term that I use for non-industry people, um, just because it's easier to comprehend than if I use a industry term. And then they go, "Oh, well, what's that?" And then I have to explain. I started using it um, back when I was uh, I was kind of semi on tour with uh, with Cavalia, uh, uh, which is a um, uh, equestrian circus, although they don't like the term circus, but they're in a big tent. So Normal Latourelle, who um, owns and came up with and, and runs uh, Cavalia and, and the later show Odiseo, which was always coined Cavalia too before it became a thing, um, is one of the originators or co-originators of um, Cirque. Uh, at some point he split from them and um, started his own thing. And um, so they're Cirque-esque um, they, to the point where there are, you know, there, there's definitely. Um, it's it's a crazy show. It I is mean, a crazy show. Yeah, there's yeah. De there's definitely acrobats and aerialists and stuff. But mm -hmm. the whole thing is centered about equestrian the horses. There's horse whispering that's involved in there and then trick riding. And then sometimes in, in coordination with the aerialists that kind of float up and down from the horses and everything. It's the same kind of thing as Cirque. It's a big tent village that gets moved around. And so I was a what was called a fly in technician with them. Um, they have like three tiers of, of crew. <clears throat> You've got your permanent touring crew who live 24-7 with the circus and travel with them from city to city <clears throat> and then run the show um, during their stay. There's the fly-in techs, which is what I was, who know the setup um, and the teardown of everything but are not needed during the stay of the city. So we fly in, we would fly in um, day before the last show. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as the last show ended, as soon as that backstage tour starts, we'd start tearing down in the front, um, tear them all down, pack them all up, ship them to now, whatever the next city is. A little bit of detail on that. You're, mm -hmm. you're tearing down that massive tent. Everything. From, so, from what I understand is the biggest traveling tent in the world, the Cavalia tent. Uh, well, the Odiseo tent now, but yes. The Odiseo yeah, tent. So the, yeah. So that one I never built. I was never part of the second show, but yeah. the first show up until that point was the biggest um, traveling tent because big, you have to have a tent for the horses. Yes, is what makes it so. Like, well, you know. I mean, the, the the big top itself was the bigger tent. They're bigger than any of the um, any of the Cirque tents. Yeah. Um, but it's not just one tent. You have the big top was the one tent, and then you have a smaller tent, a smaller version of that, which was their VIP lounge tent. You had a concessions and and main entry tent. Uh, the stable was its own tent. The um, the dressing rooms and, and warm up areas for both the horses and the um, and the artists mm -hmm. were their own tents. They had little tent tunnels that com yeah. that connected all of them. The idea was that the horses never had to go outside if they didn't have to, if they were somewhere in winter or whatnot. Um, and the, neither did the artists because they're all wearing leotards at some point, and they don't want them running through a muddy you know uh, thing. So the whole thing was a big tent village. It was probably a good dozen to dozen and a half tents were you overall. Ever that, yeah, it, it's it's insane. Were you ever a part of folding the tent? So I was. So um, the nice thing is, you so you, whereas you help out everywhere where you can, you're still departmental, departmentalized like you would be on a regular rock show. Um, so I was not part of the tent crew. Um, I 
would help. I've helped occasionally in the past, um, you know, drive tent stakes into the ground with a, uh, with a bobcat with, with machinery and take them back out. T- <laughs> Describe what a tent stake. You're not talking about camping. No, REI I'm, ta- I'm, t- I'm, I'm talking stake. about for the big top specifically, um, steel, um, three and a half feet long. Uh, wow. Some of them is like, as wide, but big around as my arm. Y- yeah. Um, that need to be jackhammered into the ground. And what machine are you using to get the, a tent stake into the ground? Um, it was a, uh, a skid steer bobcat with a jackhammer attachment where the bucket normally would be. And so you would put the, you would, you would basically pick it up. It has like kind of like a forklift arm in the front. Or like a front end loader arm, and then instead of a bucket to pick up dirt, you would have a jackhammer attachment that was probably the size of autumn, um, and you would you would uh, so someone would hold the stake where it needed to go, and then you would pick you would you would use the machinery to pick it up uh, to to maneuver the the head of the jackhammer on top of it with all the weight of the machine sitting on it, so then they could let go because you don't want to hold that while it's going off. And then hydraulically, this thing would drive it into the ground. And depending on the ground, it would either go in like butter or you'd sit there and just get shaken. And d- sometimes it's dirt, sometimes it's concrete. Sometimes it's dirt, sometimes it's, it's a paved parking lot. Um, at one point in Spain, we were on a uh, Formula One racetrack, um, which is so dense uh, yeah. that I mean, the, the holes we made in there... Um, took forever and then trying to get the stuff back out because the idea was that at the end of our stay in a city we would leave the site as good or better than we found it so if we made if we punched holes into a parking lot we would have to fill them all so we don't leave you know swiss cheese landscape around and fill them with concrete or pavement and stuff. yes yep. depending on what it was and uh, if we if we dug a hole somewhere in the dirt to make room for something or to level uh, like the tent out we would fill that back in or the, the dirt guys would fill that back in. And, uh, so it was a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of people. Um, but like I said, we were departmentalized. I was in the electrical department. Um, so I was in charge of, or not in charge, but I was part of the team that was in charge of, um, electrical distribution to make sure there was power everywhere on site, either tying into the city power or running off of generators. That's and a lot of feeder cable. Man, it is a lot of feeder it's cable. Like miles oh. and miles of God. it. And yeah. yeah, and for those who don't know, feeder cable is the main uh, power cable that runs from a generator or a city tie-in to wherever you need to go, and then distributes into smaller cables. And um, rather than your extension cord, which is one cord, it's five, um, five thick giant, co- giant cables, uh, which weigh a f- pound a foot each. So if you're running a hundred feet of it, that's times five. So and that's twenty five hundred. And the connections are heavier, right? Like right at the connections, mm-hmm. isn't that a little bit heavier? Little, right? little heavier because it's really insulated, hard, thick rubber, and it's just it's a lot of feeder so, cable. So a lot of upper body strength. You work yeah. out. You work out a bit. Multiple people. Uh huh. Um, ca- on those cables, right? And then uh, it being you know out on job sites like that, like a construction site, basically, it's usually covered in uh, mud. Uh, if it was if it was winter, it was it was icy. It was cold. Um, the ones by the stables were covered in horse shit. <laughs> and uh, oh yeah, awesome. Hazard pay. Wow. So <laughs> so coming back and doing rock and roll feeder right after that was heaven. Yeah. I would volunteer to do feeder by myself because yep. like it's not covered in crap. <laughs> so um, when you when you plug into city power, do you have to have a city official coming in and being like, all right, that's cool. You can. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it very. And so I was part of the tour uh, for the European le- tour and then part of the North American leg when they came back. Um, and they'd been around for several years before that and then traveled some more after the after I left them. Um, <clears throat> so in Europe, it all depended on the country. Um, they all have their own. They're different. Uh, oh yeah, because you have to convert everything. I uh, well, not, well, that, you had to convert you know? from from America to Europe. I mean, like the Spanish will have will use the same voltage and amperage. Oh, all like over the, the whole yeah. country. Okay, yeah, okay, it's yeah. and your 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 wall plug is has to be different in different country depending on the country. Yeah. Um, but your main power is going to be the same. It's just certain things are only meant to like. Now we make things like you know the laptop that can you can as long as you have a little adapter that changes the plug, it'll plug into wherever you need to. And it just takes, 
anywhere from 110 to 220 volts. Um, stuff that was meant for travel. So razors were like that. The occasional, if you get a specific, like a hairdryer, a travel hairdryer would do that. Um, I couldn't take, you know, like my desk lamp necessarily and do that automatic because it was that was set up for different different voltage. Now most things are can take both. So how long does it take to to set up a show like Cavalia? Uh, when you from the time you fly in and get there, I, you're the one that has to be there and start building that, right? Yeah. So like I said, we would come in the day before the the last show was always a Sunday night. And so we would get there um, Saturday night. And what, from what I understand, everything shows up in shipping containers, correct? Including the kitchen that they cook out of. Is, uh, that, is that right? So when we moved to Europe, everything was shipped, obviously, across the sea. Um, then everything is on trucks. And so they had a certain amount of trucks that were actually semis with the logos on it and everything and that were set and um and then others, yeah, it was either in con- shipping containers that were then loaded onto onto the backs of trucks, or um, just empty semis that they were sh- shoved into, like a like a rock tour. Uh, a lot of curtain sides, which is rather than loading the truck from behind, the sides of the of the trailer are soft curtains, basically like big shower curtains that pull one so so you can load them from the side, because you have things that are too wide to load through the back. Um, like the bleacher seats, for instance, it's not something you could shove into the back of a truck. It's easier to load from the sides, but you want to still cover them so they're not uh, susceptible to weather and, and stuff. So you wouldn't just use a flatbed truck that was open. Um, but yeah, it was all. So we would we would fly in on a on a Saturday night or some some place on Saturday, especially in Europe, to give us time to get acclimated to the time change. Um, and you know delays and everything, so that there was a kind of a, a buffer. Uh, Sunday night last show would end. It was it would be a slightly earlier evening show, and then as soon as they as the show's done and the crowd leaves, we would start tear down. Uh, the horses would leave. Uh, actually, they'd actually leave that night. They'd all get packed into trucks and sent off to whatever the little vacation camp was that we didn't see them for several weeks. <clears throat> and we'd start we'd start tear down overnight um, into Monday. Um, go home, go sleep, come back a little earlier in the evening on Monday night, go work overnight into Tuesday, and then uh, Wednesday, and then come early Wednesday. So we'd have like two overnights working their way into a regular day shift just to get everything done. By Wednesday afternoon, the majority of the site was gone, and, the, and then Wednesday evening or Thursday morning, most of the crew would... Uh, fly or bus or train whatever mm-hmm. the distance was to the next city where there was already a, uh, a big top set up because they had two that leapfrogged and for press purposes you know they could start selling tickets if there was a big white tent there that they could uh advertise no one's going to buy a ticket to a show to an empty lot so ticket sales would just work better that way and 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 it would help um our setup a little bit to have that already there because once all the trucks come in you don't have the room to set that up because um, everything as it comes in it gets unloaded because we'd have a crane that would take containers off of um, off of the back of trucks and we'd have that for a day day and a half because crane operators make a ridiculous amount of money and if they just sit there doing nothing we're spending <laughs> a ton of money for them to sit there and do nothing which is great for them but not so much for the bottom line of the of the, the tour and uh, so yeah by Wednesday most people would be gone a handful of people would be left to clean up the site do the last little bit of the, the, the original tent to pack that up so that it could go into storage and then two months later go to the next site and leapfrog again. Um, and then setup would take anywhere. One, so Wednesday evening they would start with your basic setup and then we do 10 hour day, normally do 10 hour days um, starting that Thursday. And the setup, depending on the site, how accessible it is, how e- how big it is, how much room we have, because um, the footprint of the village would change from site to site, obviously, because you're not always in the same sized and shaped site. Um, you would be able to, or they would do anywhere from two to two and a half weeks of setup to set everything back up and get it show ready. At some point during that time, the horses and the artists would come back and they would start doing... Um, dress rehearsals 
and do some press shows to advertise some more in, in there. So the, the tent itself had to be ready, but everything outside could be sure. working still. Like the, the concessions didn't have to be set up as quickly as the bleachers did, for instance. And um, <clears throat> so, yeah, all in all, I would usually be gone for three to three and a half weeks at a time. But I, at one time, but then I'd come home and be home for two months, two to three months, depending on how ticket sales went. And then I'd go back and do it all over again. You, when you say ticket sales, um, does that mean that they, that the show itself, the, the more ticket sales, the longer the show stays? Yes. They, so they have a, because obviously they can't expand um, their audience. Like they can only hold so many people in those seats. And so there was a certain minimum amount of tickets they would have to sell to break even from just, I mean, just the move itself. Though for those three and a half weeks, they're not making any money. They're sending, they're paying us to be there to work seven days a week for three and a half weeks straight. Um, yeah, we're hourly. There's no salary there. So they're, we're, they're paying us for that. They're feeding us. They've flown us there. They've put us up in a hotel. Um, depending on how far away the hotel is from the site uh they're paying for transportation to and from plus we get per diem which is spending money when you're not on site <clears throat> so um i don't even want to know how much that cost that's luckily not my job so is it another three and a half weeks of breaking down is no no the, no the breakdown takes sunday night to wednesday afternoon oh just so just a few days it's a three-day ish tear down and uh, and because you can take stuff apart so much quicker and put it away well, yeah. yeah it doesn't have to be pretty <laughs> um yeah and uh and so in each city we would also then hire a local crew um to help do the grunt work basically and so you would hire a lot more of them for the teardown than you would for the setup um because it's just easier just to fire line stuff you know towards a truck or towards a case or anything than having to make sure that certain lights certain speakers you know video projectors are, are set up just right so everything works and then you have a couple of techs to do that and make sure and troubleshoot as stuff goes because it just bounced around a truck for three days going across country or you know i we so when we were in marymore park i mm. was in the kitchen yeah. right and we it, first of all i didn't even realize the kitchen was a shipping container yeah you know with a tent extending out mm -hmm. you know and um which i when i, I I was there several days into it, you know, in the, in the, I think three months that, mm -hmm. I, that I was there and, um, that was really cool, but it did pack up really fast. Yeah. That tent, everything just basically was shoved into cleaned, cleaned, mm -hmm. shoved into the, into the into kitchen, that yeah. kitchen. And it was just oh, like yeah, that no, half a day. Really good at that. utilizing all that space. And one, the kitchen's one of those things too. It is, it kind of has to be the last to leave or one of the last things to leave because you're still trying to feed everybody feed that's, that's working. Exactly. But you also want to be one of the first things on site on the new site. So you're feeding everyone that's there. So you're not spending money on an outside catering company or giving everybody extra per diem so they can go off site and buy their own lunches and their own. So, cause they would feed us. Um, I mean, obviously the one, the people that are permanently on that tour get fed by them all the time and then have their own kitchens. Yeah, and then take care of their, their own needs. But those of us that are put up in the hotels, you know, the hotel might have a breakfast, but we've, depending on what uh, what time we have to be on site, mm -hmm. we might leave before that even 4 gets up. Yeah, exactly. Have to, yeah. So, um, and then, you know, lunch and dinner, it's just easier and quicker to feed us on site than for everybody to disappear and then wander back. Yeah. And so they're, they're feeding us three meals a day on site <clears throat> during, yeah. During, yeah. That, during that 10 hour mm. period. So the kitchen there. then is another case of First one in, last one out. Yes, basically, or one or, or close to it, because you can't physically be first and last. Because how was the food, by the way? It was good. Yeah, very good. <laughs> you were Cavalia. I was Odiseo. I, I think our food was better <laughs> than Cavalia, but whatever. Well, I think you actually, you guys, at one point had our chef too. Um, Anique or Eve? Eve. Eve. Eve the was the <laughs> Eve was was chef at um, that guy. at Cavalia when I when I started <laughs> yes. there. Yeah. Um, and then the tall girl, Nikki. No, I think Eve was the only one that Eve, I, just that Eve. I, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's super cool. No, he is. He's, he's as a soon as you know, and that was a crazy experience too, because like in my case, everyone spoke French mm -hmm. or Quebecois, Quebecois, which, yeah, Quebecois. which is not French, Sorry. but yeah. <laughs> well, the, I, and, I mean, the Quebecois will say it's French. The French will go, that's not French. Yeah. And there was a, there were a few French people mm -hmm. on that show anyway. So like 
there was this kind of this weird wall between us like Americans that were working mm-hmm. and, and all the, 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 yeah. the Quebecois. And as soon as I started learning some of their language, mm-hmm. you know, I, it, we were best friends. Yeah. I mean, the know? thing is too, the majority of the Quebecois speak English. It's just, just they learn that in school. Um, and because of pop culture nowadays, every, almost everybody in the world speaks English because of that. They all speak it. They also have this wonderful um, bastardization called Franglais, which is French and English mixed together, which I'm sure you've heard. Uh, you would pick up every other word because it's English. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it is, you know, Cavalier being a, a French Canadian company, they're going to have mostly people out of, out of Quebec, out of Montreal, out of, you know, that work form, the, all the, the, the permanent guys, um, electric, we were, we were the only one of two English speaking departments, um, where none of us were French at, at one point in time. Um, now electrics there, we were at our height. There was five of us two um, <clears throat> no, sorry, three permanents and two fly-ins. Um, and at the lowest point it was two permanents and myself as a fly-in. So just because when people quit and moved on and whatnot, the other the other department was the bleacher department, which were pretty much all Portland, Seattle, and and Idaho guys. Um, and during the stay in the city, in during the stay, there was none of them stayed there the whole time. They, yeah. they were purely a complete flying group. Threw steel together, put put bleachers together, and then left because um, the couple of maintenance guys little things they could fix during, during the city, you know, the actual, you, you don't have to tear it down. You don't have to put it together. Electrics, you know, you have to have someone there that can troubleshoot a power outage or anything like that. So they had to have people there that, that ran stuff during the day and, and during the night and, and fixed things. Um, but yeah, we were the only two non, we were the only two English speaking, um, radio channels. <laughs> um, so you knew if you heard something French, going on on your channel that someone had lost their way <laughs> had switched switched channels by accident <clears throat> and so so that was interesting. but they all spoke english i mean there was i think there was one stable guy that didn't speak english um and i speak enough french having grown up in, in belgium that um which again also the french will tell you it's not french <laughs> belgian is a little different as well but I speak enough of it that I could, you know, get get by. Once I figured out what the pronunciation was and and how much English they threw in, and um, I didn't use it very much, but I could understand probably more than they thought I could. I I, <laughs> um, I tried to learn some also to talk to, maybe to talk to some of the girls, <laughs> a single at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Eve, funny story about him. He was saying, um, he's like. If you you know how if you like the girl, tell him this. I that's a terrible accent. Yeah. Whatever. But he was like, you know, if you like the girl, tell her this. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, it, it means she's pretty. And so I'm, I'm sure I'm pretty, sh- no, it? it did I'm not. Sure it it did not. talked about something else, and he's like, he's back there. I said it, and they were like, how dare you? <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> and then I turned around, and and Eve's dying, and I was like, what did I? It was yeah, it was a. Not nice. That was, that was probably his version, of their version of you know sending the new guy to go get level bubbles or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the just complimenting something else. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Get the cheeseburger out of the. Oh, I can't remember now. There's a, it, it, send somebody to go get the cheeseburger. Yeah, mm. off the, the meat rack. The, the or something cheeseburger like off that. the meat rack. Yeah. yeah. The, the 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 only thing I can remember is "Est-ce que je peux aller à la toilette?" Where's or can I go to the bathroom? Mm-hmm. Is what that means. So, <laughs> um, so when you, so when you got that show, uh-huh. that massive show, all torn down, um, how long? And then you fly home after the breakdown, right? No, uh, we would break it down, and then we would go to the next because stuff is constantly like there's trucks that left Friday, uh, sen- Sunday night. Like as soon as we filled the truck, it would leave and go to the next city. Gotcha. So you got to go straight to the next city. Next to the city. Yeah, the next city. I would usually stay behind an extra day and help clean up the site because there's still power left to for the tent. There's lights on top of the tent that need to be packed up. That's not the tent crew's um, uh, responsibility. It's, it's part of electrics, even though it's part of the tent setup. It's I'm still the one running power to it up the mast, um, making sure the lights are 
pointed down at the tent so they light the thing properly that they're connected to something so there's light there so i someone would have to stick around um and wait for the tent crew to take down the skin and then take down the 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 uh the mass so we could get those lights and the cabling off so they could pack everything into a truck and so and our stuff would go it would all live together on the same truck but they weren't responsible for it and they had enough stuff on their plate they didn't need to be responsible so one of us would stay behind and towards the end that was me so by the time i got to the next site the day after with the rest of the tent crew because they didn't have to be there because they had already set up the big tent or most of the big tent um, on that first day, a lot of stuff would already started, like the bleachers were already starting to be being built inside. Uh, some of the distribution was already being started by some of the other electric guys. Stables started getting put, put together. Um, it was, everything just kind of happens at once. And so, yeah, so a teardown would happen two and a half, three days, and then two and a half to three weeks or so of setup. So the whole thing would be about three to three and a half weeks, again, depending on the site and how well you can get around it. And then I'd go home. Now, um, not everyone would stay till the uh, till premiere. Um, a lot of a lot of the flyings would leave, and a lot of the locals we would stop using. About a week or so before premiere, when um, they would start dress rehearsals inside the inside the um, the tent, it's basically like like sound check at a at a rock show. All the non-essential people don't need to be there; they can go away. And then those of us that are still there doing stuff are then off to the side doing things, not paying attention to what's happening on the stage because that's not our problem. So, um, like the tent was ready to go and, and, uh, they could do their thing. I could now run distribution to the popcorn machines and to the, the hot dog rollers and, and the lights in the, in the concessions tent that aren't going to get used for another week, but, it, but they're going to start bringing in their local guys to start setting up the points of sale in there yeah. and teaching them how to use their, their point of sale system. Cause they, again, they, they would have like two or three people in charge of it all, but all the cashiers, all the, the kitchen staff, all the, the, uh, the bartenders, those are all local guys that would have a job for three months. And uh, so in electrics, we would stay till the uh, till premiere, the, the whole run. Most of the most of the other uh, guys would leave a week before that. There's so much that goes on with just setting up and tearing down that show. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and granted, uh, this is, you know, on the high end, on the big end. It's, it's a it's a village. It truly yeah. is. Um, to the point where we had a little trailer park in the back because some of the, like the farrier, um, you know, lived on site. Yeah. That's exactly how I've described that to people is it is, it's its own traveling town. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's awesome. I mean, we have bigger populations than some stationary towns in yeah. the world. Yeah. <laughs> it's bigger than the town I actually grew up in. Well, there you go. <laughs> you know? So when did you, when did you get started in this industry? So, um, my first gig was just out of high school, um, back in 99. I, uh, this was, it was kind of a contest thing um, that was put on. This is back when I lived in Europe. Um, so I lived in Holland at the time. And um, there was uh, a festival in Belgium uh, called Pickle Pop that... Uh, had been going on since like the mid 80s or early 80s and they had um there was a contest uh that you could be what they called a roadie for a week um not knowing any better we're like oh cool we're gonna be roadies i mean we weren't roadies but we helped basically those of us that won we could all bring a friend the plus one there's like a i think there was five or six of us that were winners and then we had um we could all bring a plus one and so for the week prior to the festival, we would help set up the main stage, build the main stage, which I didn't know back then. Knowing now, um, that was, was a Stageco stage, because Stageco is a, the main staging company in the, in the world that builds the big uh, stadiums and festival stages, and they are based in... Yeah, so, um, yes, in essence, there was a bunch of volunteers, but we were volunteers, like, we wanted to be there. Um, we were getting paid and, and they would only let us do certain things. Like they wouldn't let us go above the skin, above the, the, the deck. Um, and we weren't actually putting things together. We were basically the, the, um, uh, the fire line, you know, they taught us what a ledger was. They taught us what a, what a, what a transom is. And then they had us hand them those while they put them together. We didn't touch a hammer. We didn't, uh, you know, we, we just, we were basically just the extra help that they had. 
Um, and again, I'm not sure what the purpose was, if they just decided to go cheaper those years or what the deal was, or if they'd done that for several years, but there's one, I, I happened to enter the contest and did it. Or maybe they were trying to get, get some new blood. That could have been it too. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but it was, it was fun. It, I enjoyed it and I figured, okay, and I'm done with high school. I'm going to college. I'm going to do something different. And that was a fun thing. And I never thought about it again, really until, um, about six years later when I moved here and um, <clears throat> happened to answer a Craigslist ad uh, <laughs> to work to work the Warp Tour at the Gorge. And um, it was basically one of those things where I, I had gotten the first job I could while I was here, um, not related to my field of study, which is film, mainly because I couldn't get a film job or TV job starting off and um my wife and i got pregnant pretty much as soon as we moved here it's like okay i can only afford to look for something for so long before i have to have something and um i only had so much real world experience as far as jobs go um and so i ended up being a delivery driver for um a printing press okay. here in, in redmond actually and um I'm in the delivery truck by myself all day long with the radio and a couple of cell phones. So I would win uh, radio contests left and right nice. <laughs> for, for tickets, tickets yeah. to shows and stuff. Yeah. And because um, they oh, we take caller number seven and I'd pull over to the side of the road and I'd have them on speed dial on my phone and on the work phone and just double, double fist in it till I got through. And um, Warp Tour was one because I didn't have any money, you know, because we were, um, you know, like I said, starting out and... Uh, trying to get ready to have a kid and um yeah warp tour was one i just could not win my way into yeah. no matter what i did and i just happened to be because i would look on, on craigslist for on for weekends to for extra gigs side money um film projects that i helped out with just to stay in with film stuff little film festival things and happened to come across an ad a very cryptic ad that said do you want to work the warp tour and i said yes i do <laughs> and answered that ad and it was, I mean, looking back, it was semi-sketchy because it was a little bit of good faith. Okay, well, come out to the gorge and, you know, your name will be at the gate. <laughs> and, and then you got to the gate and they said, sorry, you have to have a pass. And you said, I just got here. I have to go inside to get my pass. Yeah, not quite. It wasn't quite at that point yet. But yes, <laughs> it, was, it was like that. This, this was, and again, this was 05. So this is back... Um, that's a thing that still happens. Well, it happens not it hap today, but currently no. up to March. It happens, yeah, a lot. Um, <clears throat> and no one in production seems to see the problem with that. That security is doing their job and not letting people in without a pass. But my yeah. pass is inside, and I can't get to right? it. Right? It's it's like you know, it's in the promoter's office. Yeah, exactly. To get there Once to upon get a it. time, security was handed a collection of passes and a list of names. Yeah. It is. Uh, it doesn't it seems yeah. to have fallen by by the, by wayside, the wayside, definitely. Um, but yeah, and so that's how I got into it. And it was a part-time thing I would do on weekends um, for about six months, and then um, left that job and just kind of went all in. Um, end of that end of the summer of '05, I answered another Craigslist ad um, for uh, Ozfest at White River. Um, again, somewhat cryptic. Uh, this one was actually put out by Tammy. <laughs> for ERM at the time, um, but it was semi-cryptic. So I'm like, I don't know if you guys are the same company that are working the gorge, but if so, I already work out there. I would love to work out here as well because it's closer. If not, hey, I've been doing this for a few months, and you know, and again, on good faith, go to the go to the White River and and uh, we'll have paperwork for you on site, and none of that, you know, going to the office, fill out stuff, interviews, like all like, sure, you're hired. Um, which I lucked out with, uh, and then slowly turned that into my career. Um, doing anything, again, from unloading trucks, pushing boxes, to the last five years, five or so years, um, I started really concentrating on lighting and, and being a lighting director, trying to be a lighting director, and, and um, to the point where, beginning of this year, I spent some money and bought my own gear, and it's sitting at home, and. I've stopped buying gear because I, 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 so I don't have enough <laughs> yeah. to do anything with yet. But I, I, you know, I, I did pull the, uh, pull the trigger and, and bought a lighting console beginning of the year and have used it once. And it's now sitting there and I'm making payments on it. And 
man. Well, hopefully um, that thing will see a stage, you know. Hopefully. Someday. Soon. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know. I mean, it saw a stage. It's, it's done its first gig, but it's obviously not paid for itself yet because it's one gig. Yeah, hopefully that'll, that'll change mm-hmm. soon, I hope. Yeah. Um, Where did you do that gig? Uh, Timber. Or Timber out in Leavenworth. So. That's a beautiful place to do a gig. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, nice. it's. I heard the scenery is not bad up there. <laughs> it's not bad. Know? I mean, it's it's in January, so it's indoors, but it's it's still a, it's it's still a fun, it's a fun gig. It's one of the, one of my favorite uh, lighting gigs, definitely that I've done, and hope to do again. What is what is the favorite show of yours? What's the best show you've done, or the one that sticks out <clears> the most? Well, a lot of them stand out for different reasons. Um, as far as like big stadium, steel builds and like really industrial, as far as that goes, uh, it's got to be the U two three sixty. The claw. That's still, yeah, still um, one of the we greatest. We definitely hear that a lot. I mean, it was a fun one to build. You know, it was a fun one to climb up on. Um, I was on the uh, several cities of that that mm-hmm. tour, not the whole thing, because that went on for yeah, something crazy like that. I was only on a couple months. But yeah, I, I just did the Seattle stop, but it was it was a fun one. It was it was different. It was long. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it was. But again, the whole thing over and done with within a week. Um. And uh, so as far as big ones go, that one's definitely one of my favorites. Um, uh, lighting wise, like being in the in the captain's chair, so to speak, if lighting, you know, doing LD stuff, uh, tim- timber or with three R's, I think. And so the winter one um, is, is my fa- is, is a very fun one because I'm pretty much in charge of the whole lighting thing start to finish. And it's my my thing. And it's all bands that you haven't necessarily heard of before, mostly local. Um, granted, so last year, uh, well, this year, rather, um, the headliner night two was Pedro the Lion. That's the biggest oh, cool. biggest yeah, we yeah. had. And they brought their own guy yeah, ended up, who ended up using my um, my console to do their own thing because it was very video-driven and they brought their own video stuff. But um, you get to... It's, I, I like shows like that too because you get to... It showcases a lot of local music and, and you get to know new artists um, some of which I've now, after having done them like that, I, I now I've, I've become fans and I, I try and find them in other shows. Uh, Black Tones being one of them. Um, uh, Monster Watch is a fun one. Um, Action S. So a bunch of local local bands like that that are fun f- fun to watch. Um, that one's fun. Um, and then I I think probably my favorite gig overall that really has nothing to do with rock and roll is. Uh, is being uh, crew lead out the Sounders games, sure. I mean that's that's event. I mean that's, <coughs> it's it's, it's event. Hu- those and are huge. Yeah, and you know? and the the crew that I I run is uh, in charge of um, setting up fan experience and doing um, opening ceremonies on the field, but we're still out there rolling out carpet and the the uh, the the riser for the national anthem and stuff like that. And for me as a as a fan of the sport of soccer and, and a fan of the sounders it's a bonus because i get paid to be there and get paid to watch the game when i first started with them i was I, I ran a confetti cannon um every time we scored a goal i got to cool make a big mess i didn't have to clean up i want to do that <laughs> they, they they got oh, rid yeah. of they got rid of those unfortunately but i'm still part of it i think prior to this season um in the 10 seasons that they've been a, uh, a major league team i've missed Maybe five games. Yeah. Um, we got to work the first two of the season before everything shut down, and then now they're doing everything to empty stadiums. So I still watch them on TV, but it's really sure. weird not being there. I know it's super weird. Man, I almost got to work a confetti cannon once for the first <laughs> time at a corporate gig, t- a tech company. I don't know who it was. It was huge, and we wheeled out. The promoters like, "All right, get the confetti cannon ready," and I was like, "Ooh, this is it!" And uh, we wheeled it over. Got it all filled up and ready to go. And he was like, all right, you guys are cut. You can go now. And I was like, what about the cannon? He's like, well, that's not till later. We just need to have it set up right now. And <laughs> we'll do like, that. Damn it. So it's, it's pretty fun. Huh? Mm. I've, I've heard. It looks fun running those things. Well, for us, it was because most confetti cans you'll do off the side of the stage or you'll do like by an entranceway. So it's like right there. And we've done it on the field for like trophy celebrations. So like when you see... When you see uh, pictures of the team holding up a trophy because they just won the they just won the MLS Cup or or whatever it is, um, and there's a wall of glitter behind them, basically of, of, yeah. of mylar confetti. That's me and another guy shooting that off right behind them. Um, 
but what well, we shot them off the 300 level in the in the stadium up top so oh um, cool and the yeah, the way the yeah the idea was oh, it was they, this big cloud of confetti of, of team colored confetti that would slowly rain down cool. on everything, and actually the way CenturyLink is built, um, if the wind hits it just right, the the confetti would kind of go towards the middle because there'd be four of us kind of on four corners, quote unquote, um, shooting towards the middle, and it would all go into a cloud into the middle, and then toilet bowl and just spin oh, in the air cool. and 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 yeah. distribute for a few minutes before it would start coming down onto the field. Okay. Um, and very onto the crowd cool. below, which was fun. That's very cool. And then man. on the other end, if wind hit it wrong, it would go up and over and hit the parking lot behind the st- behind the stadium. There you go. <laughs> um, what was the last show that you worked? The last show that I worked was actually a it was a what I would call a double header. Um, it was Keen at the Showbox Soto uh, Market. I did work the in and the out, load in and the load out. In between, I went to the stadium to work Sounders game. So, because timing works wonderfully with that. So it was, um, <clears throat> yeah, keen load in the morning, Sounders game in the early afternoon or late afternoon, early evening, and then back to the loadout at the end of the day. Um, I was supposed to work the loadout for Third Eye Blind on March, oh, on March 11th. Was that Showbox? Mm-hmm. Yep, that was Showbox. Man, it was Showbox Soto. Uh, my friends... A lot of my friends had tickets to that. Super bummed that they couldn't. But yeah, what, did the show actually happen? No, they didn't. Oh. They didn't unload the trucks. And it was at that point in time, it was no gathering over 250 people, which is a quarter or a fifth of what the showbox holds. Oh, I think. I see. Yeah, I think that I think that venue, um, Soto specifically, I think they hold about 15. All oh, Soto's are 15. 1500. Yeah. And I think it was a sold out show or close to it. So either way, it wouldn't have happened anyway with that. But they, yeah, it was like small theaters could still keep going, I guess, during that. But that was that wasn't happening so technically that was going to be my last show <laughs> that that loadout um it was actually march 7th so that sunday before was uh and then march 14th or 13th that friday was the last day of in-person school so my kids uh stayed home after that and haven't been back since yeah, and I just <laughs> saw a thing of tw- of their the the beginning of twenty twenty one cancellations, and it's just mm-hmm. like, I'm not even looking at that. Yeah, I mean, I know I, it's I know it's happening. It's yeah. just so. I mean, on that note, so I'm going to end it with the question I ask everyone: Is um, you know, if you had a government official that's in charge of making these decisions, and here, especially here in the state of Washington, um, what would you like to say that to that government official? Um, well, it'd be long-winded, which I'm not going to go into because it's too much. But, um, I mean, I, I understand, you know, obviously the precautions being taken. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm all for the mask mandate, and uh, it makes sense. Uh, and it's just common courtesy, obviously. Um, and I understand we can't pack a 1,000 people into a small room and, and sweat on each other and, and, and do, do these things. But um, we got to find some way to... Uh, to keep this industry going, to keep the, the, not just for our sake, the workers who, uh, you know, have gotten some government assistance, little, but some, um, have, you know, have unemployment that has worked for some people. Some of us have been able to get other jobs or fall back on savings or, um, you know, have a spouse that hasn't lost their job. Um, luckily, you know, to that, uh, and I know plenty of people in this industry that have now moved on, that uh, have left town, gone back to live with family, uh, have gotten another job, which they're now turning into a career because it does have more and more security as far as that goes because it's deemed essential. Um, there's venues that are not going to be able to reopen because they don't have the money to, uh, to keep going, um, even though they're not paying anybody right now to... To, to run their venues or, or, or do shows, there's rent to be paid, there's taxes, you know, property taxes to be paid. So some, somewhere there needs to be something where they can find a way to make that work. Restaurants have been able to make things work. Churches have been able to make things work. Uh, they have drive-in church services. Um, uh, they have drive-in movies that still happen where like all this outdoor summer movies that would have happened um, at Mary Moore Park or... Um, 
in other places. A lot of them have turned into drive-in movie sites. You know, drive-in movie theaters are doing great right now, so I understand because they are... Ironically, shortly after they tore the majority of them down. Yeah, yeah. there's only like 300 of them left in the country, unfortunately. Um, But I know they've been doing good. And I know Metallica just did a a show, a drive-in movie theater show. Um, that uh, and a lot of the proceeds are going towards relief funds and other things and, and obviously those those theaters that can work um, but uh, you know especially here in, in, in this state we were starting to open back up and starting to figure out okay well we can do drive-in concerts um, Joe was doing drive-in raves uh, figuring something out um, we my, my wife and I and some friends of ours started doing what we called uh, you know backyard concerts um, to help local artists out. We would hire local artists uh, for a hundred bucks or whatever, just something. And they would play in our yard or in our case, our driveway um, to us and our neighbors that that's, we sat nice and separate. Great. Sure. And we gave them something to play, you know, half hour set, a little bit of live music to make people, to, to lighten up people's day and to give them a little bit of extra something to do something. Because not everybody has the chance to, you know, be like a lot of the artists now that are doing all their online concerts or their yeah, stuff from home I and, and started looking <clears throat> into live streaming for my band. I'll figure it out someday. Mm-hmm. I'm like, can I just get on a stage and play a show? Yeah. I, I, like it's the tech end of it. It's not every band. You're right. Not every band can afford that. Mm-hmm. And not every band, like it's just a whole yeah. other world. And I mean, mm-hmm. you have things like the dropkick Murphys did two shows. Now yeah. they, they did Fenway park and then they did their, uh, their St. Patty's day show, right. As all this was starting, uh, well, Fenway Park, obviously, then you know where that was. But their 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 St. Patty's Day show was, you know, secret in a in a studio uh, just outside of Boston, yeah. which they told afterwards because they gave them props as to you know, and they would look great, it sounded great, but they have the money to do that. You know, like you said, you can't afford to do that necessarily, and um, you've got different mandates in different states. You know, um, I know here they've been doing things uh, in smaller venues, again, online stuff. But again, you can't have more than 10 people in that same room. So when the band takes up, say, six of those people, then your techs are you have less techs on site that can actually run this, even if they're really far apart or you're in another room, which is not ideal. Um, you can't have that many people in that same space. And so it doesn't work. You need to figure something out to keep something going on and get some help to uh to the venues and the, and the staff and the 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 small business owners that um maybe for their the majority or entirety of their their career uh have relied on word of mouth advertising yeah. you know i understand like i said we can't reopen you know and go straight back to where it was and it's going to sure. be a while for that but we got to figure something out as far as either support you know, government support as far as money, grants, you know, not loans um, or deferred anything because people yeah. don't know how to, a lot of people don't know how to manage money properly and that's already going to be an issue. It's like, oh, I don't have to pay for it. Great, <laughs> spend it all. And then later they realize that they owe it all back. And they just, But, um, you know, something to keep things afloat, to keep people afloat, uh, to make sure that when everything is okay, we can come back and, and, and do a show. Because what people don't realize is unlike, you know, restaurants who have been able to keep going to a point and then slowly reopen and redo and bars and all that stuff, you know, if, say, in a, in a year, um, we're the fact that we can go back to what we consider normal, um, and that's just throwing a random number out there, and they go, okay, cool, let's start booking tours and start going somewhere and half the venues that they these bands would go to especially the smaller venues that the smaller bands are are um you know relying on to do their tours because they can't fill arenas yet right. or they don't want to i mean there's something to be said about small you know intimate shows as well um those venues will not be there and even if the venues are there you're not gonna be able to have the people pull the people together that know what they're doing because you can always find volunteers, but that that only that only goes so far. Um, you know, my my history is not the ideal, um, you know, way that that works yeah. usually. You can't just hand um, a brand new person who just walked in off the street um, any sort of technical equipment and expect them to know how to use it or a plot um, yeah. or any 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 of that. Yeah. Um, and then trying to explain, these are the hours we work, and this is how the brakes work, and this is how this works, and yes, it's going to be physical, and you're going to be on your feet all day. And it's like, Not everyone's cut out for this, and I, I appreciate that, but we're losing a lot of the people that are. And um, so 
a 360 tour, you know, you two, if they decide to do something that size, which obviously they're not going to right now, but uh, that takes hundreds of people at the same time to, to work, you, trying to, and at that point, even in a, in a small market like Seattle, where you have other things going on at the same time, other, other venues working at the same time, um, you know, and it's, and it's, and it's a lot of it's a lot of different companies coming together and working together to make these things happen. You still can't put everything you have into that because all the other stuff will fall apart. So you need to be able to figure out some way to, to, to help us. All right. Well, I'm going to end it right there, man. Um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully things come back soon. Sooner than later. I don't um, mean to end on a sad note. No, but. I know, but <laughs> no, uh, but but you know, hopefully, um, hopefully, certain people will listen to this and you know help us out. Mm-hmm. You know, um, man, Steve, I appreciate you coming in, yeah, no taking problems. the time to do this. Um, Again, sad note, but it was fun. Yeah, <laughs> and we'll definitely, um, you know, we want to keep this going as long as we can, and mm-hmm. love to revisit and you know check up on you. Sure. See how you're doing. Do like six months from now, see where everyone's got or something. Yeah. Steve Schaefer, part sense. two. Oh, sure. <laughs> Season two. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Awesome, man. And uh, thanks everyone for listening to Show Call. To help save live events and the crew that make them happen, go to wemakeevents.org and tell your representatives how important live music is to you. That's WeMakeEvents.org. If you'd like to be on the show, contact us at guests at showcallpodcast.com. That's guests at showcallpodcast.com. If you have questions or would like to know more about what it takes to put on events, contact us at info at showcallpodcast.com. That's info at showcallpodcast.com. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Google Play. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Don't forget to subscribe. New episodes are uploaded every Monday and Thursday. See you next week. WeMakeEvents.org is not affiliated with Show Call Podcast and is not responsible for the views expressed by the show.